Okay, one of the uh, unique features of the Shibata Raita is that we value intellectual diversity. And uh, oftentimes we have panels who present different models to students dealing with different topics, both philosophical and halachic. So the panel we're doing today is a reflection on different conceptions of God in Rabbinic uh, Judaism. And uh, I'll just begin by saying that one of the unique features of the Cook's theology that the Cook thought that the challenge of secularism actually provided a unique, unique opportunity for theological reflection. And he felt that the secularists, or proud atheists, right, were reflecting a conception of God, a reflection, a reflection of religion, conception of religion, which he felt was sort of small-minded. And therefore he thought that the challenge that they posed to traditional religion actually allowed observant Jews to sort of assert in a more conceptually rigorous way what it meant to believe in God. So one of the, uh, one of the ideas that Rakuk discusses is the notion of what's called panentheism. Okay, panentheism is an idea that God transcends everything, but everything else, everything in existence, exists within God. Okay? So the, the panelists will elaborate on this, but what I want to begin with is asking the panelists to reflect on which conception of God in the rabbinic tradition do you most connect to? And how do you understand the idea of Salam Elohim in context of your conception of God? So, Rabbi, you want to start? Fishing. Okay, so it's a uh, well-known passage of Rav Kook, where Rav Kook contrasts two ways of thinking about God. Okay, one way is what he calls classical monotheism, and the other is what he actually originally called uh, inclination towards Spinoza, but uh, his Talmudian were too firm for that, so they took out Spinoza and put in pantheism. But uh, the original does say Spinoza. But in any case, the uh, difference is as follows. Classical monotheism would have a sense of like it's a potter who makes a pot of clay. And then there's a real difference between, you wouldn't identify the pot with the potter. Whereas pantheism is more, perhaps a better image would be the sun sending out rays, and the rays are much more part of the sun than something distinct from the sun. And uh, so he Rav Cook has a balance, which we're not getting to right now, between how we balance the two. He actually has this interesting idea, which I don't fully relate to, but some of my students always do. Rav Cook says that we're a little bit jealous of God, that we like to be a part of goodness, of absolute goodness, and here we are lowly humans. But within the pantheistic approach, we actually are part of that, and that is uh, reassuring. Because okay, so some of you might relate to that within Rav Cook. I personally am a big uh, identifier with the classical monotheistic approach. I see two main drawbacks with pantheism. I guess I'll be positive. I see two major advantages to classical monotheism. Okay, one has to do with relationships. I have a very beautiful relationship with my wife. I have a wonderful relationship with my kids. I do not have a strong relationship with my elbow because the elbow is me, and a relationship demands distance. So the degree that you obliterate distance between God and humanity, I think you also hurt the capacity to have a relationship with God. Right? Love and fear of God is part of that. I am not God. I am something distinct from God. That would be my first advantage to classical monotheism. Secondly, if I go with the pantheistic approach, in a certain sense, I'm arguing that our current existence is an illusion. Right? The capitalists would say there's a higher unity and a lower unity. In the higher, in the lower unity, we have all these distinctions. We have Noah, we have Ellis, etc. But in the higher unity, they all blends into one. And uh, I actually find that a less comforting way to think about the world. 
I, maybe I'm just like stuck in my individuality and can't give it up. But I would also say, I like to think that our actions really matter. Right, that when I'm deciding this morning, am I going to be nice to Hoodie or not, right, well that's true in the deeper sense. It's not just part of our illusionary world, where the truth is if I can scrape away illusion, everything is gone. So again, I would say I'm going to be a stronger advocate of the classical monotheistic approach. Two advantages mean separation enables relationship, and also separation indicates that our life is not an illusion, it really matters. That's a low-key. Sorry? a low-key. Oh, I have to answer both? No, hold on. Yeah, I'm not even sure if someone is really related. Don't know why you threw it in there. Oh, totally oh, wow. related. Oh, okay. wow. We'll have a debate just about that. Okay, I'll, I'll respond to that later. Okay, no. okay we're going to have fun. Okay. Uh, wow. Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, I know that the Talmudian love when we get into Makhlukas, so we're going to have some Makhlukas here. Um, what's nice about this is you can't really say that it's one versus the other. There are different aspects. I know that's a panentheic way of looking at Makhlukas, but... Uh, I actually, first of all, I would actually start with Tzalem Elohim. Tzalem Elohim seems to be way up there in the, in the foundation of the way we relate to Akash Baruch Hu, because right in, ingrained into the sort of uh, the recipe for the creation of Adam is that we're all created with Tzalem Elohim. And it's interesting that everybody choose in pantheic, uh, sort of a pantheic way of looking at Hashem that, that you know, that there's a sun and there are rays of the sun and the ray is not the sun but it's an aspect of Hashem um, whereas the Torah seems to create almost the antithesis which is rather shadow which is the absence of light as opposed to the bringing of light um, and I've always looked at Salam Elohim that we're somehow shadows of Hashem what aspect of Hashem can we most connect with can we most relate to is most critical to our existence and separates us from all other creatures and that would be choice. I mean, I'm a simple thinker, and uh, I like to surround myself with complex thinkers. You'll see that that's true in a minute. But um, I think that our ability to choose, our responsibility to choose, is one of the greatest aspects of being created with Salam Elohim. And in terms of how I view Hashem and how I see myself in relation to Hashem, I actually do think of, of us as an aspect of Hashem. Rabbi Aaron likes to take one of the pieces of Rav Kook. Um, and translate it into a more uh, sort of understandable, relatable idea, which is, you know, if you look at a, a dancer, and you see a dancer dancing, so dancing is what the dancer does. It's not who the dancer is, it's just what the dancer does. And writing is the product of the writer. So a person is a writer, and writing is what he does. So we're called human beings. And therefore, we, the beings are what the be-er does. And the be'er is the source of all being, which is Hashem, Ayahu Vev Yiyesh, is the source of existence. We are somehow, you know, puppets of Hashem. And that actually relates to what Rav Blau struggles with, which is that this world might be a, an illusion. I'm okay with the fact that I live in an illusion. When you live in an illusion, Judaism seems to want us to live within that illusion. We're not ca- I'm personally not capable of rising above the illusion. Knowing that to some degree it's an illusion actually affects the philosophy on a deep level. So therefore, the fact that we're sort of beings and aspects of what Hashem does means that before, in our world of illusion, it's up to us. We have to do our shtadlos, we have to do what we're meant to do. But once something has happened, and I realize that it uh, sort of reverts to the realm of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's planning, then it's easy for me to say, really, Hashem has this planned all along. And that contradistinction sort of flows from that perception of Hashem. So. <coughs> Hi everybody. Such a heavy slap. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start with saying that we are we are doing this shalok halacha. Yeah. 
because uh, the din is that the youngest and most uh, inexperienced is supposed to speak first, lest he be swayed by the, uh, by the older and wiser. It's a din in uh, Hilchah Sanhedrin, so maybe these are Mile de Agadita, or I'm not sure exactly, but... I'll go with older. Since wiser okay. doesn't apply, okay. we're okay. Okay. Um, okay, so... Um, I guess I'll, I'll just jump in with where maybe I see things a little bit differently. Um, let's start with the assumptions, which is, I heard both of my co-panelists speak about what is comfortable or not comfortable. So I'm going to do something which is probably a little bit unconventional. Let's talk about what's true. Okay, so it's true that we live in an illusion, for sure. Lace man de pole. We live in, a, in an illusion. Nobody thinks nowadays that the output of the reality that we're seeing right here is exactly the way that things are. Science has developed to a place where, thank God, we know that the world that we live in is not exactly the way that it appears to be, and that's true on the microscopic level, and it's true on the macroscopic level. The way that we sort of used to look at the stars or look at reality uh, is not the way that things are. Um, so that's already, that's already the case. We have uh, a mystical tradition. The Jewish religion has multiple traditions that are running through it. Um, the mystical tradition, I'm going to argue this entire time, uh, I'll start, I'll just throw it out there, I'll let the cat out of the bag, um, spill the beans, if you will, that uh, the mystical tradition is the only tradition that even claims to be going back all the way to Sinai. And we could, we could debate that on this panel. But the more rationalist tradition sort of claims that the Merkava tradition or, or something like that, at least the, the strong Maimonidean rationalist tradition, claims that we sort of lost the mystical tradition along the way, and we need to recreate it from scratch in some way. Um, so I prefer the mystical tradition because then when, when Ramam said that, there were people who came out and said, what do you mean we lost it? We have it. You, maybe you don't have it, but we have it. So that's going to be like a, a foundational de- debate probably going through this whole thing. Let's just start with Tzalem uh, al-Kim. There's, there's a number of opinions in the Rishonim about uh, Tzalem al-Kim appears, that the word Tzalem al-Kim appears twice in the creation story. It appears once in the beginning of the creation of Adam and once as a bookend in chapter 5, Eilat Toldos Shemayim Va'aretz gives a bookend again and references Tzalem Elohim. So we have Tzalem Elohim at the beginning and at the end and the Rishonim debate what exactly it means. It either could mean intellect, the intellect, the human capacity for intellect. Uh, this is not going to help very much but some identified with the soul. Okay, that's uh, the Ramban explicitly says that. The, the Rashi says it, it means some sort of a relation to the intellect. Free will is mentioned by both the Rambam and Hilchah Shuvah and in the Meshachachma. The Meshachachma mentions uh, free will as being the, uh, the, the locus of, of Selim Kim. I just want to take one step back, because now that I just you know, got me some big trouble by making the statement I made before, I'll just talk about Selim Kim for a second. There's a very famous, uh, some of the Shonabet guys and I were learning Nefesh Chaim. Nefesh Chaim begins the beginning of his book. Nefesh Chaim was written by uh, the great student of the Vilna Gon. Um, he wrote a sefer which basically came to tweak, whereas the Vilna Gon's relationship, let's say, with the Hasidic tradition was like, no, never. Uh, the Nefesh Chaim was like, well, no, but here, let me tweak it uh, slightly. So in the, in the beginning of the sefer Nefesh Chaim, he has a few chapters where he defines this concept of, of Tzalem Elohim. And in doing so, it really sets the, the tone for whether it's a more Hasidic or more, you know, uh, Lithuanian Kabbalistic worldview, he really sets the tone. And what he basically says is, Obviously, Tzalem Elohim does not mean that we are created somehow in the physical image of God. He brings a pasuk about David HaMelech, saying that he is in the Tzalem of a desert owl. In Tehillim, describing himself as a desert owl. The, the obvious conclusion that he draws from there is that David HaMelech certainly did not grow a beak and wings. That's not what it means, that he is in the image of a desert owl. What it means is 
Uh, just like it, this is his, his interpretation, just like a desert owl sort of wanders around from one place to another and has no fixed abode, David Melech felt that his whole life he was wandering around like a desert owl without a proper place to call home. And so when we say that we're made B'Tselem Elohim, what that probably means, if you take the conglomerate of intellect and, and, and the capacity for speech and free will and all these things and put them together, it means the uniqueness of human consciousness, the uniqueness of human consciousness, which somehow has the capacity to be, and this is part of what I mean when I say, and I'll end with this, this is what I mean when I say that obviously the way we look at the world is an illusion because human consciousness is something bordering on the infinite. There's an infinite, I'll just give you an example right now, there's an infinite number of things that we could be paying attention to right now in the room, and until I say the words right now that your feet touching the floor is something that you're all feeling in the moment, your brain wasn't processing until I pointed it out, and now I can point to your back against the chair, and the sound of, you know, some distant whirl in the background. There's an infinite number of things, literally an infinite number of things that are happening right now, and consciousness constricts ourselves to a particular uh, slice of reality, but of course reality is way beyond what we're experiencing. So Tzalem Kim means the ability on some level to choose how to constrict that infinite perception called human consciousness, whether it's intellect or speech or free choice, into a subset of a particular experience. Okay, so we'll sort of move to the next question, although just to clarify for Rablau, the reason why I think that Tzalem Kim is relevant is because if you're a classical monotheist and you assume there's a gap between humanity and God, so Selim Elohim seems to bridge the gap, right? Selim Elohim assumes there's a part of us that is actually connected to the divine. So the question becomes, how do you simultaneously maintain that distance while still affirming the traditional idea of Selim Elohim? Yeah, notice what happened in the conversation. Two of the possibilities were free will or intellectual achievement. Right. You could easily say that both went to my position and Rabbi Dovrell's position. Okay, fine, but they may not be the classical biblical paradigm. I mean, those are both sort of like... Well, we'll get to that in a second, okay? Anyway, we'll come back in free to, to tell Melokim, but I want to sort of move for a second, now that each panelist has talked more broadly about different conceptions of the divine, um, how do you guys each relate to the idea of proofs for God, okay? Proofs for God seemingly seem to be much more compelling within a monotheistic framework that assumes you can argue sort of beyond yourself, right? But even within a panentheistic framework, presumably there is room for rational reflection and, uh, and analysis. So do you think that proofs for God are sort of a critical view, part of your religious worldview, or do you think more in terms of experience and less in terms of sort of rational dimensions of proving God's existence? Okay, so I think it's clear there's been a change between the medieval period and modernity. I think in the medieval period there was a real sense that if we just, you know, study and think long and hard, we can prove all the truths of the cosmos. And modernity's realized that life is more complicated than that. And it's hard to find, for anything that really matters, it's hard to find one knockdown proof that annihilates the opposition. I will just point out, this is not just a challenge for religion, it's a challenge for everything. I mean, if you want to prove that uh, the Pythagorean theorem, you're great. But it's kind of hard to live life based on the Pythagorean theorem. But if you want to prove ethics and religion and uh, things like that, that is much more complicated. So I would suggest this doesn't mean we throw out proofs, but it means it's going to be a combination of factors that lead to belief. I'm actually going to not have three factors, I'm going to have five factors. Okay, number one, I think we'll take the old rational proofs, but instead of viewing them as definitive, we'll view them as suggestive. Right? We're like, we're piling evidence on a scale. So we'll say, okay, maybe the design of the universe doesn't absolutely prove God, but it's suggestive. So we'll, throw out the, we'll toss the divine argument on there. We'll say the cosmological argument, the fact that anything exists. We will talk about, for those who find it convincing, Rabbi Udo Levy's mass revelation argument. So that's all within the, revel 
be rational, but again, nothing has a absolute 100% proof, just as suggestive. I would also add experiential, like some of our navigating the world is how we experience the world. And do we experience divinity? Do we experience an encounter with transcendence in various moments? Right, be it a couple of Shabbat, be it on a mountaintop, that would be a second thing. Uh, thirdly, I would throw in historical arguments. Uh, I think for many of us, the remarkable survival of the Jewish people and our ability to restart a state and reclaim sovereignty after 2,000 years is perhaps the most unique story in human history. And that's something that could help bolster one's faith as well. Again, I'm not claiming it's an absolute argument that only a fool would ignore, but it's suggestive. Okay, that's number three. Four and five are going to be a little bit different. And in my younger age, I wouldn't have said these. In my younger age, I was like a super truth seeker. The only thing that matters is truth. Uh, but my first few arguments are truth-related. Fourth and fifth, I would say fourth is pragmatic. Like somebody might choose because you just think religious life is a source of goodness, right? It's a source of, you know, Friday night meals with the family and uh, the wonders of Shabbat and the greatness of Talmud Torah. And now I keep them in the faith. So I think, uh, I mean, even with pragmatic is not great because it is a values-based pragmatism. It's not like to make a lot of money. But it is at the same time not a direct truth argument. And fifthly, I would say, and this is even more recent in my life, some of it is uh, just identity. Like, we don't, I've said to my students many times here, you don't choose your identity. There are aspects of your identity you choose, but at the end of the day, you come from somewhere and you have a gratitude towards it. And just to give you an example, uh, you know, you don't choose, oh, this is great for parents week, you don't choose your parents. Right? At the age of 18, you don't get to say, well, actually, I like mom and not dad so much, so dad's fired. Right? That's not the way it works. Like, you know, people have raised you and you're part of them, and no choice you could make could change that from being your identity. And maybe someone who grew up in a Jewish community where the values made a role, played a role in their lives, so that's not something that can be jettisoned. Now, in William James' famous essay, The Will to Believe, he says, you have to make a choice with the following three criteria. You have to make a choice when it is a forced choice, right? meaning you can choose to be agnostic intellectually, but you can't live an agnostic life. And momentous, has to really matter. It's not like chocolate versus vanilla ice cream. And three, it has to be a live choice. And I, when I was younger, I, I thought live choice was a silly criteria, but I've come to appreciate it. Everyone starts with a certain context. And maybe it's not really reality for me to become, a, you know, a, a, I don't know what to do. It's Zoroastrian right now. It's not a live choice in my, in my existence. So again, just to sum up, I'd say there's no one argument that does it for me. It's a combination of rational arguments, experiential arguments, Historical arguments, pragmatic arguments, and identity arguments. Very thorough. I, um, I think there's a lot more agreement uh, between Blau and I here. Um, I just want to add w one, more, one more piece. Um, in terms of the relationship with proofs, um, the relationship to, to proof, sorry, grab your... Uh, no, 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 yeah. I just wanted to see which piece you were looking at. Oh, the, the, the relationship to, to proofs is something which uh, is a difficult thing to wrap one's head around. Just for all the talk of truth that I just spoke about before, um, it's important to recognize that because we live with those assumptions, or I, I actively live with those assumptions that I, that I began with, um, that we live in some sort of an illusion that there is... You know, there, there's something beyond. So then there's, we could say that perhaps there is a capital T truth out there, but you would be a very silly person to think that you have it somehow. The closest thing maybe that you could talk to of a capital truth is the sum total of, of different perspectives together, which gets you somewhere in the vicinity of that capital T truth. But there's an ultimate gap between that capital T truth that maybe exists and our ability to grasp it. And that's maybe an uncomfortable thing to, uh, to, to grapple with, but it's 
nevertheless, something one has to grapple with. There's a, there's a Gemara in Mesechet Brachos, uh, the, one of my favorite commentaries on Shas, uh, is, a, is a commentary on the Garata. I'm not afraid to admit it. I, I have many commentaries on Shas that I appreciate. One of my favorites is the commentary of Rav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook, his commentary on the Agaratas of Shas. And he has a beautiful explanation. I've actually shared it with uh, some of the guys in my Chumash share, but I will share it again. Um, where he explains a, a rather esoteric Gemara. The Gemara says, greater Godol is what it says about Michael in the prophets than what it says about Gavriel. Greater is what the Nevi'im, what the prophets speak about the angel Michael than what it says about the angel Gavriel. So I'll try to present this short and concise and in a way which is powerful. The Gemara then goes on to say, what is the big difference you find in the Nevi'im? Well, there's a postage that seems to indicate that when Michael, the angel Michael, wants to get from point A to point B, he nearly, he nearly needs to flap his wings one time and he gets from point A to point B. That's what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, when Gavriel wants to do the same thing, he needs to flap his wings twice, which means that he's not quite as strong as Michael. Rav Kook then goes on to present a remarkably brilliant explanation of this Gemara, which brings it into the realm of the psychological and the intellectual as opposed to the, uh, you know, angelology, um, which is difficult to understand why we would need to know that. Um, and Rav Kook says the following. He says something like, um, Michael is traditionally, and he quotes several Midrashim to support, to bolster his idea, Michael generally is the archangel of the Jewish people, which represents faith. It represents... Um, an allowance for that gray space where after all the proofs have been uh, developed and, and you sort of intellectually uh, created suggestions for why you believe what you believe, at the end of the day, the world of Michael is the world of prayer. It's the world of emunah of simple faith, of receiving something outside oneself that really can't be proved. Gavriel, traditionally, as we find in several places, is the one who teaches the 70 languages of the world to, uh, to various figures throughout Tanakh. We find that Gavriel comes along and he gives wisdom from various different sources and he's really more associated with, let's say, the philosophical doctrine of, of proof, you know, of trying to create some sort of uh, logic, logical uh, derivation for something. So Rav Cook says, obviously, if both of these angels exist or both of these two structures for trying to understand the world exist, then they're both necessary. Not, one, is not necessar- one is greater than the other in some sense, but in, in another sense, we need both of them. And this is what he says. He says, the problem with, let's start with Gavriel. The problem with Gavriel is that Gavriel, it takes him two times to flap his wings to get from point A to point B. Well, here's the problem. It's uh, something of a Zeno's paradox for those who are familiar with the, the paradox of movement and how movement works. How can you move from point A to point B if every single time moving from point A to point B, you have to move half the distance first and then you have to move half the distance again. You should never be able to get to the second point. It's a philosophical idea. But Rav Cook says, when we say that he needs two flaps of his wings to get from point A to point B, well, hold on a second. When he flaps his wings the first time, what happens is he gets half the distance. But that's a new point A, which means that he's going to need to get from point A to point B. He's going to need to flap his wings twice again to get to point B. And he should never be able to get there. And Rav Cook says that's exactly the problem with philosophy. The problem that philosophy has is that philosophy can never quite get you there because it can't prove something definitively. It can only get you closer so that your quote-unquote leap of faith, right, so that your leap is not quite so far. You don't want to be leaping over buildings from one to the other. You want a tiny little gap between your suggested truth and the truth that you ultimately have to jump into for all the reasons that Rav Blau laid out, whether they're pragmatic or they're truth-related or whether it's just your identity. Michael is the angel who gets you from point A to point B, which means he finally gets you to the destination. 
Because one of the things that I think uh, a lot of us have seen, and I, I, my, my co-panelists and the other they are welcome to join, but I think everybody can speak for themselves and, and recognize that there's so many times when we try to prove something to ourselves so strongly that we become sort of frozen. We never can actually move forward or choose a path. And we'll open all the books and, and, and ask the questions and get the answers. And at the end of the day, we're just sort of right back where we started because we haven't moved. We haven't done anything. And one of the beautiful things about uh, being in a yeshiva environment is that you get to sort of like be in the lab and like running the drills of putting on tefillin and, and davening and doing these things without having fully developed the Gavriel piece. And that is the Michal piece that ultimately gets you to say, does, how does this feel? Does this feel true? And so ultimately, the, the combination of these two together is sort of moving closer through the flapping of your wings of Gavriel, which means the philosophical uh, and, and, and the faithful jump at the end of Michal work together to create a, a picture where a person can actually feel comfortable and at home in what they believe. That's a beautiful piece of me, yeah? um, This is fun. It's interesting to me that we're now speaking about how we relate to proof. When yeshiva, nobody took a moment to define what a proof is. Um, and there are many different ways to look at this, and I, I'm quite sure Rabbi Blau will offer a rejoinder, but uh, I'm a simple thinker. I like the Amunah Pshuta approach. To me, a proof is that point beyond which you have no doubt. Like, I have no doubt, absolutely, that if you throw water at me, I'm going to get wet. Even though, in an ideal form, I should know that we live in a world of illusion, and if Hashem decides I'm not going to get wet, I'm not going to get wet. But we do live in that world of illusion, and that, to me, is a proof. I think that at a certain point, or at least for me, that was true, you reach a, a level of maturity where you realize it's absurd to try to prove God. I don't think you can prove God, and I don't think we're meant to prove God. But that doesn't mean there's no value to proof. If Tzalem Elohim very much relates to choice, then an aspect of that choice is my ability to look at different possibilities and choose what makes the most sense. Maybe Sachs has a wonderful article, I forget where it is, one of my esteemed colleagues will be able to quote it, I'm sure. He talks about uh, the concept of, uh, you know, at night, after Krishna. Krishna represents Kabbalat ol Nochut Shamayim. It's the ability to accept into your life that Hashem runs the world, oversimplified. And after that, we say, this is true and this is stable, but at night we say, why? Because, because emunah sort of lives in the night, in the darkness, when you can't see things clearly. And it's interesting that one would have expected that it should say, I have to first believe in something and then I know it's true. But that's incorrect. Emunah is a loyalty to a certain truth. Right? And that truth may well be what makes the most sense to me. And here I very much agree with what I was saying before, and I think also with Davidal. There are many things that are going on today, many experiences, many processes, that seem to lend themselves to the idea that Hashem runs the world. The state of Israel, the history of the Jewish people being just one example. Right? So once I pursue and decide that something makes more sense to me, then I'm ready to take that leap of faith. So what is that faith, and how does that relate to proof? So it's the same thing when you, uh, I don't know, when you first start dating. So you meet a girl, and uh, looks interesting, and at a certain point, it just starts to make more and more sense. So that might happen quickly, but it makes more sense. But you don't really know. How do you absolutely know? You never prove that the person you're married to is the right person. You know, I'm married to Mitzvah 35 years, actually, uh, in a few days, and you can't say definitively that I could absolutely know that I couldn't have married someone better or that this is the right person. I don't know. 
I know people who have gotten divorced after 50 years of marriage. Gosh, Baruch only knows. But you can say that logically it makes so much sense, right, that I've reached a level of knowledge. Now, how do you reach that level of knowledge? So we've talked about this many times. Knowledge is all about relationships, right? knew even in biblical sense. She becomes pregnant. She gives birth to Cain and Hevel. This is Rav Dessler's classic example. And therefore, knowledge is all about relationships. So once I decide it makes more sense that Hashem does exist and I begin to work on that relationships, I can actually reach a level of knowledge. If you ask me whether I think Hashem exists or I know Hashem exists, I absolutely know Hashem exists. And proofs got me in the right direction for that journey, but as Rebdavidal says, it'll never get you all the way there. And the assumption that you have to absolutely know something without any possibility of it being incorrect actually limits your ability to develop your relationship with Hashem. So. Okay, maybe we'll take some questions from the audience. Anybody have any questions for all the panelists or one specifically? Yeah, Avery. If you speak loud, because there are people trying to hear your question also. If, if Tzalam Elohim is such a fundamental idea and like, everything, it's like, it's like up there in the biggest, in the biggest issues like, the Jews of the world, why is it like presented with some of the, with, like, Nasa, Adam, and so many big questions around it that are like, really hard for like, people to grapple with, and like, cause a big pitfall for like, um, biblical criticism, like, right there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, there's one here. Thank you for you guys. No, it's just you. It was you. No, I was just you. You guys mentioned about. Uh, you guys mentioned about Salomon King. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. You want to know why Salomon King, which was seems to be such an essential piece of the makeup of humanity and Judaism, uh, why there seems to be a gray area surrounding it, if I understand correctly. Look, that very much relates it. Tzalem Elohim may well come from the word tzel, or tzel may come from the word tzalem, which is a shadow, right? When you look at your shadow, it, it, it comes from you, but it isn't actually you, right? So our ability to choose, if we're going to choose that direction, <laughs> pun intended, in terms of related to Tzalem Elohim, that isn't actually a Kosh Baruch but that's an aspect of, of what Hashem gives me to sense the divine within me. Now that's not a linear, empirically definable thing. It, it, it's, 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 you know, it's not like the creation of, of, of water, and therefore it makes sense to me that there's a lot of gray around. That being said, it's also interesting that it's included, it's part of the rubric of the, the fundamental makeup of man, and therefore it's included in the beginning of creation. By the way, all of creation, if you look at the Shiva Yimei Breshit, all of them have a lot of questions around them. You know, for some reason people don't spend a lot of time studying them. Look at the Perushim on the... You could spend a year studying Shiva Yimei Breshit, but that's a whole... Yeah, actually, I think the questions raised by Nasa don't have very much to do with biblical criticism. It's not about multiple authorship, it's about why would you use the plural form. And I would also question... I would also question your assumption that if it's really important, we shouldn't have question-raising uh, phraseology. I understand that, and if it's less important, then it's a good time to have question-raising phraseology. I mean, whatever it is, we'll have to figure out why it says Naset. Is it the royal we? Is it humility of, con of consulting the angels? But I don't see the placement as affecting the status of Tzalem Elohim. I didn't understand. Your question was about the word Naset? I thought it was about whether Tzalem 
why Tselem seems to be hard to define. I think it's both. Oh, okay. So we covered it both. I okay. both. One more question from the audience. Anybody? Yeah. Uh, so what is your conception of why bad things happen to good people, as well as how you deal with it emotionally when you struggle with the question? Hold on a second. Um, just, it's a great question. Um, my job as the moderator is to moderate. So both theodicy, why bad things happen to good people, and also biblical criticism are also panels in and of themselves. So we're going to try and stay focused on the question of God. Right? Obviously the question of how God is involved in the world has implications for the Odyssey or the question of why would God write the Torah in a specific way. Right? And there are a million offshoots of that and the time's a great question. But I promise you we'll have another topic panel on the Odyssey. Okay? Or Thursday night. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay. I'll even I'll even strengthen the question. <laughs> you should repeat the question. Sure. Sure everybody the question is, you know, there <laughs> seems to be a split among the staff about to what extent you incorporate Kabbalistic conceptions of God into your religious life. Right? So certainly Rablau seems to be more on the side of minimal Kabbalistic uh, interaction in terms of his religious life, or Rabbidl and Rabbidi seem to be, even though Rabbidi's clean shaven, he seems to still endorse the, uh, the, uh, the Kabbalists. No, I said Rabbidi, not So, so seems to endorse that model. So the question for Ablau is, right, why is he resistant right, to adopting a more Kabbalistic framework? I would push the question even further, is that uh, since my beard is short, I can also say this. But, bit, but basically, if you think about the history of Judaism, so it sounds like in the medieval period, there is a debate about sort of which direction Judaism is going to go. Right? There is an option to go in the more rational route, let's say, for example, the Rambam. There's an option to go the more mystical route, for example, the Ramban. But as Judaism evolves, right, it seems to be, and Rav and I have discussed this a bunch of times, that the Kabbalists win, and they win big. Right? There are exceptions, for example, Rav Lichtenstein to a certain degree of Salvagic and Rav Hirsch, but it seems to be the Kabbalistic worldview has become so dominant that almost every contemporary theologian uh, incorporates it into their worldview. The question becomes for Rablau, if you're sort of going with a non-Kabbalistic worldview, A, why do you adopt that? And B, are there parts of Kabbalah that uh, influence your religious life? You know, do you have mystical moments? Do you think that mysticism plays a role in the context of religious life? That's what I would probably flesh out further. You'd have to define a mystical moment, by the way. Uh, I'm not sure. I could, even I cannot answer that all in five minutes. Give me six minutes. <laughs> what? Six minutes. Okay, great. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll just say one thing. I agree that we should not discuss the Odyssey, but I'm not going to explain why. And we can think to themselves. I think my approach makes the Odyssey better or but I'm not explaining why. I'm going to think Okay. The uh, in terms of Kabbalah. Okay. Um, disagree on that too. I think you have a uh, you have direct challenge and. Indirect challenge. Like it's true, it's not so common in our tradition that people directly challenge the Kabbalah. In the sense, like someone like with Yaakov Emden, wondering if Shabbatai actually with the Zohar is not so common. Although you do have it as a minor voice, that would be more of a direct challenge. But I think you often have, and maybe challenge is even the wrong word. What uh, Professor Benny Brown once called kicking Kabbalah upstairs. In the sense, that you say, "Oh, this is a very holy thing. We're not going to deal with it." But the ultimate result is that you develop an entire worldview where Kabbalah plays no role. Okay, Rav Hirsch has a whole Jewish philosophy. I, I would say that Kabbalah plays not a single role in developing Rav Hirsch's philosophy. Rav Salvechik occasionally tosses out you know, uh, ideas from the Tanya, but I'm with Lawrence Kaplan on this, that that's more you know, rhetoric and window dressing. It doesn't really affect his philosophy of life. 
So that means that there's a whole pattern out there, there's a whole school out there that uh, thinks that one could develop a Jewish philosophy without recourse to Kabbalah. Now, David has said correctly that it's a minority, but guess what, that's okay. Uh, in the world of Jewish thought, for sure, we'll discuss halakha another time, in the world of Jewish thought, uh, we don't have a rule like that. We have to paskin like the rove, and, uh, and therefore, like, there's a definitive decision about majority wins. Right, if you think the minority is closer to the truth, if you think the minority is what attracts you to religion, so you should follow that. So again, I would say we have the direct uh, criticism of it, and we have the kind of ignoring of it, right? This shunting it aside where it doesn't become really part of your worldview. Uh, in terms of what I get out of Kabbalah, so some of you know I've written about this, that uh, many of you know I like Rav Tzadok, according to the a lot, and I argue that, that what I do is I, I convert from metaphysics to psychology. That the same idea could work on a metaphysical plane, it could work on a psychological plane. If the Kabbalists teach that Ruvain is a Gilgal of Kayan, so what do I do if I don't believe in Gilgulim? So it works out okay, because the same idea is very powerful without Gilgulim. Kayan is an older brother and is upset that his younger brother usurped his role, and he kills his younger brother. Ruvain is an older brother who's upset that his younger brother usurped his role, and he tries to save his younger brother. So that's what Gilgul means here. It means that we have a similar challenge, and someone is able to overcome the challenge where they failed in the past. So I think those of us who are not so mystically inclined, I think you could do that more than you think. Those are curious. I, I, wrote, I wrote on Times of Israel about it once. Just Google me and metaphysics to psychology. I think uh, we're often able to do that. So uh, again, I would say, hey, this justifies a orthodox worldview, not both on Kabbalah, but B, nor does it mean they have to throw Kabbalah out. I think we can often translate the Kabbalah into terms that, is quite, that are quite meaningful for us. Question to this side of the room? I knew it, Elias. Can you stand up so people can hear you better? Yeah, Thanks. in the beginning you mentioned... Can you stand up so people can hear you? In the beginning you mentioned that like part of the world could be an illusion, but you don't love that, so you choose to believe otherwise. Um, I was wondering if you think it's okay to choose what you believe is and what you like. Okay, so I'll say two things. Part of the argument was, uh, like you're saying, not an absolute truth argument, but what works better. If you want to justify that, I would say, well, what if you can't prove what's the truth? So it seems to me then, at that point, what works better should be the criteria. Okay, but secondly, I think there's also like, it's not exactly this, but I'll call it a coherence theory of truth, where what I believe should cohere with other things I believe. So let's say I'm already convinced that it really matters that I should, you know, smile at an orphan and not push him down. Right, I'm convinced of that, that's a truth in my mind. What if I think that that truth works better if I don't think my life's an illusion? So then, from a, so then I'm making a truth argument, not just a pragmatic argument. See, if my beliefs are going to be coherent, I should believe that the orphan really exists and pushing him down really hurts. Maybe any parents have any questions? So following up on Rafi's point uh, that some Elohim can meet refers to the shadow, I've always been drawn to the idea that, that God creates a world that exists in his shadow. In other words, a place that he hides from us. Uh, and the fact that we can't prove his existence, it's not a, a, a bug of this world, it's a feature. And so that people have a choice, you can't go all the way to a proof in either direction. Um, but then he inserts himself into history uh, with Matan Torah and says, I am here and I do exist and, and these are the rules to live by. And so it seems that, that Hashem sets up a system where 
we can wear different hats at different times. At, at times, we want to, I mean, I certainly pursue experiential you know, connection with the divine. It interests me very much. It seems that there's other times when you know, we're meant to just function in this world and not pursue the bigger questions. Uh, so I guess in, in terms of that kind of bouncing back and forth, do you find uh, an equilibrium that is useful? I'm not sure I'm addressing the question too. Yeah, no, no. Um, it, 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 uh, look, one could look at the historical line, maybe circle of Judaism and the world as begetting different periods. And that there are periods of sort of greater clarity with regards to our relationship with Hashem and periods of greater darkness. One example would be the Six-Day War versus the Holocaust. A uh, more extreme example would be Har Sinai, which we can speak about. I don't know that we can, or certainly I can't fully comprehend it. Um, what is fascinating is to watch the impact of those direct moments where supposedly an entire people... By the way, it may also be that the experience of Revelation at Har Sinai was a unique experience which was necessary for other extraneous reasons, like uh, the Ramban's perception that there had to be one moment where an entire people see something, and that differentiates it from other revelations that are individualistic or small group think, etc., right? Uh, that could be. Um, I, I do think there's an additional quotient to that, which is, how do we relate to the events around us? And this kind of pulls you back to the question of illusion. It, is, it, it would seem to be logical to me that if Hashem inserted himself to such a great degree, we lose the ability to choose. That's why, for example, there's a famous discussion of Chazal uh, around the story of Purim, where B'nai Yisrael somehow achieved some level of acceptance that they didn't ex- achieve previously, because the revelation was so, so there, so present, they had no choice. Right? There are moments in life where you, you can't choose to do something, whatever it might be. If the proctor is sitting, and you're taking a test, and he's sitting right at you, you don't you don't choose not to cheat. You, you can't cheat, right? So it could be that we still needed to distance ourselves from Hashem for some way because that allowed us to choose. And that somehow elevates not only our, our own significance, but the contribution we make to the world. So that's how I look at that. Thing. That's the short version. So. Go ahead, Chuck. Um, so there, there seems to be this sort of debate in religion around, uh, I wrote the Pesachim down here, I have them translated though, between seek me and live, versus like, the righteous lives by his faith. Meaning, there's a certain group of people that will say, you should always be searching for God and looking for God. And there's a certain group of people that say, there's no need, right, you should live faithfully. And that's, you just need faith. So, you hinted at it a little bit in your uh, proofs question. But which side would each of you say you connect to more? I'm going to jump in. So just to, because I think it relates to this question and touches on a few things that were, were stated already. The idea that the world is an illusion, um, I can't imagine that we should take seriously the idea that because we're saying that there's an aspect of the world that's an illusion, that we could kick an orphan. Meaning like the, 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 idea, the idea that... that uh, the world is an illusion is something which is, at least in the Kabbalistic framework, is something which is assumed by Rav Yosef Cairo, who was also a lawyer, not just a Kabbalist. He wrote down all the laws about how you're supposed to treat other people, and he took those rather seriously. Um, so uh, I guess my main thrust of, of my perspective and my argument is that it seems impossible to me, um, and I think it addresses Elias' question also, it seems impossible to me 
to, uh, to split those two systems together. Meaning, if we are going to claim that Rav Yosef Cairo has a tradition that tells us what we're supposed to do on the 15th of Tishrei with four particular species that are not explicitly written in the Torah, then we might also believe that his tradition regarding the Kabbalistic tradition is also correct. Otherwise, we'd have to explain why we don't believe in one and, one, and, not, and we do believe in the other. It's not that the illusion of reality somehow makes uh, the experience not meaningful in some way. I would say maybe just the opposite if we had more time to talk about that. To your specific question about seeking God and, and living versus uh, the righteous lives by the faith um, being these two polarities. So I would say that you know, there's, they're both correct. In other words, the seeking itself for the model, I said it so beautifully, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug in the system, is that it is impossible. This is uh, found in the Sefer Shayichur Vamuna from the Baal Tanya, which is a, obviously a classic Kabbalistic Sefer, where he makes the point, which I always sort of return to uh, personally, that even Moses, the greatest of the prophets, Moshe Rabbeinu, even after he is disembodied, he is no longer in his body, and he's entered into whatever supernal realm, still is Moshe Rabbeinu. He, he never completely merges with the divine in the sense that there's always going to be the individual person who is separate from the divine and must be seeking the divine, the faith that somehow it is, isn't a waste of time that I take that step forward and enter further into the cloud on the one hand, you know, the nigash ala rafel, the way that Rabbeinu Bechaya says it so beautifully is that Moshe Rabbeinu, in stepping into the cloud to receive the Torah, sees as if God is just one step further away from him. And when he steps one step further, oh, he recedes even further away. That notion that God is, of course, it's not a, a bug in the system that God is unreachable doesn't mean that I'm somehow not being pulled further along in my own development as I continue to seek him. The, the faith in the fact that I'm not wasting my time when I take another step further, even though he's going to recede again as soon as I take that step, is the balance between seeking him and being faithful that I know I'm never going to catch him, so to speak. It's whole sheer, sheer, I'm never going to catch him. But the, the chase itself helps to develop me in a way which ultimately I can look backwards and say, well, I was over here, but now I'm over here. And it's because I was chasing after something. Yeah, um, Rabbeinu Bachri in his introduction to Schovos Alvavos quotes the Pesach you mentioned, Tzadik ben Natorichia, and he's basically responding to what he either presumes is going to be a contention or has already experienced. He's basically going to start discussing mitzvot and how we understand mitzvot, and people will say, Tzadik ben Natorichia, how can you struggle with how we have to be supposed to do what Hashem says? So he answers in somewhat caustic fashion to those that say tzaddik b'mnato yechiyeh. I would respond ksil b'choshech yelech, like a fool walks in darkness. Hashem gave us an intellect, and part of the reason that Hashem gave us an intellect, you know, is what we're supposed to do with it. And this is exactly what Rabbi Bakri says: just like we have hands, we have to figure out how do we use our hands to serve Hashem, and how do we use our feet to walk to Hashem. So how do we use our intellect to serve Hashem? The way we use our intellect to serve to Hashem is to figure out and to struggle with with these questions. That's number one. Number two. There are two types of emunah, at least as posited by Hasidus. So Baal Shem Tov talks about emunah tasechel and emunah pshuta. In fact, in one of our shiurim, I think even last week, we talked about elokeinu velokeavoteinu and why it's important to elokeavoteinu. And one way of looking at that is as much as emunah tasechel, the ability to grapple with these issues and struggle with them, come to conclusions, is valuable, there's also a value to saying, you know what, I don't know, but Rav Lichtenstein figured it out. Rav Chaim Velazhin figured it out. The Briska Rav figured it out. That's good enough for me, right? <coughs> I think there's a value with both of those. So it's not that you have to choose one or the other. It's precisely the way they complement each other which flushes out, you know, your Amuna. And the last thing I would say, just in responding to your response to Rav Lau, although I don't think Rav Lau meant that, but whatever, um, 
the idea of the world as an illusion is not necessarily, that doesn't mean that I can hit you and it's all an illusion or that I can walk through gunfire. Like, you know, if they're, I mean, that's part of your status. And, right? Bitachon ends, you know, where, or Bitachon begins where status ends. I think the fact that the world is an illusion for me personally is more about the idea that whatever's happening that I struggle with, I can take a step back and know I don't really get it. How do you deal with October 7th? How do you look at some of these things and see what happened and maintain your emunah? Because this world is an illusion. I don't fully understand it. It's beyond my comprehension. And I'm okay with that. Having said that, you still have to grapple with what you're supposed to do within that context. That's... Sometimes it's a question of like whether you're really capable of making both choices. If you look at the Kuzuri in the fifth section, he talks about people who have beliefs without questions, people who have beliefs with questions. And he basically says once you're in the second group, there's no turning back. Like there's no magic switch you could do that okay, now I'm back to the first group and it's just fine. So I think a lot of people today find themselves in the second group. So at that point, it's not really an option to go back to the first group. The second thing I would say is that uh, it's not just a question of belief in God. It's a question of how sophisticated your belief is. Someone who doesn't think deeply might have a great belief in God, but a very unsophisticated belief. For example, they might think every time anybody suffers in the world, it must be because they sin. There's no other matter. Every suffering should be traced to sin. I think it would be a very problematic conception, but in a simplistic worldview, you can plug that in. So in my mind, the reason to rationally analyze is not just about coming to belief in God, it's that you should have a healthier belief within that system. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah. Um, so there's, in the academic world, like where there's a first thing for excursion and others, the question of the authenticity of the author of, uh, of the, um, the Zohar, how do, how do, as a rationalist, which I'm a rationalist, sometimes when you're too rational, you do want to know, you do need a little bit of a, how do we grapple with these things and, you know, the language in the Zohar kind of not, not jiving with the time frame of Rabbi Akiva, how do, how do, you, how do we grapple with this? Look, I'm not sure you should direct the question to me. Maybe you should direct it to a double or a Okay, so whoever, whoever you think... I'll just say that. I'm, ha I'm happy to go for that. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say to you, is, in my mind, if you don't think the Zohar was written by the Shemir you don't think it was ordered by Shemir Khali, you're still a good Jew. Okay, so uh, I don't think I have to challenge you from... Uh, make you kicked out of the community. Secondly, I'll say, just a little challenge for my colleagues here, let's forget the Zohar for a second. There's nobody who accepts all Kabbalah, I shouldn't say. No one in this room accepts all Kabbalistic ideas. In the Kabbalah, you're not supposed to learn Tanakh at night. If a student asks for a double, can I learn Tanakh at night? Well, he said, no, you shouldn't learn Tanakh at night. It's the, the, the forces of dinner out. No, you would ignore that. So no one has been. <laughs> <laughs> all right? The floor is yours. So first of all, on the authorship of the Zohar, um, Several things. There is a, there is a wide and uh, deep-ranging academic dispute about the authorship of the Zohar and exactly how it's pieced together. Um, I'm not quite yet 40, which means that I do not regularly study the Zohar in depth uh, you know, for great periods of time. Um, that's sort of a joke. I, you're allowed to study before you're 40, but um, I, have not, I have not done that. The little bit of studying of the Zohar that I have done, it is evidently clear on almost every page, certainly in every parsha, that there are notes by the classic commentaries on the Zohar, um, no matter what camp you're, you're studying from. I'd say, like, let's take the two most classic commentaries that are used for the study of the Zohar on a regular basis are 
the Matok Midvash, which was written by someone named Refresh, and there's someone, someone called the Bal Hasulam, a very famous family of, of Kabbalists. And they wrote the two most, you know, Hamon Am, you know, uh, uh, appropriate for the masses translations of the Zohar, on almost every page, uh, but definitely in every Parsha, there are notes that say, this section is not from the original passage of the Zohar. And that's not a problem at all. I think if you open the beginning of Meseches Kedushin, you'll see that the first six pages or so, five pages or so, the Meleches Shlomo writes, are added by the Gaonim. This is not the Tanakh. There's no problem with things being added after. The idea that this is not somehow... Now, one other thing. Nobody, nobody thinks that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai wrote the Zohar. The Zohar explicitly says that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai instructed his students to write down the teachings that they were themselves studying. In the same way that nobody thinks that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai wrote the Mishnah, even though he's quoted in the Mishnah, we know that Rabbi Udanasi was the one who wrote the Mishnah. And so you take these two things together, and the entire academic discussion becomes almost a little silly, because it's creating this, you know, this boogeyman that maybe Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai didn't write the Zohar. He didn't write the Zohar. Nobody thinks he wrote the Zohar. There are definitely things that are added later on, and that's not really a problem, considering the fluidity and the hidden nature, uh, the non-canonization of the Zohar until much, much later. And um, I think that takes care of the, you know, the, the, the major issue in terms of the, the writing of the Zohar. In terms of um, how to deal with uh, studying Tanakh at night or other Kabbalistic or, or semi-Kabbalistic questions, of, uh, these are matters which are debated by the post And there's a general principle, which is already quoted by the Beis Yosef and is quoted by the Magen Avram in a number of places, that whenever there is a debate between an esoteric and an exoteric source, meaning a Kabbalistic source and a regular chain of how we pass in the halacha, that... Uh, if there is some debate between those two uh, and it's going to lead to some, mm, some compromise in our service of God in some way, so then we can lean heavily on the, ex- on the exoteric sources, on those revealed sources. And so it's true that if a person would say to me, I'm either going to study Mishnayis right now or Tanakh, which one would I tell them to do at night? Well, there's a Gemara and Megillah, even an exoteric source that might say it's better to study Torah Shalop at night. But... Uh, I would not say categorically there's an Isser because we have to take the entire system into an account and that's part of my presentation in general. You have to take the entire system into account and there is a Kabbalistic system and there is a Halakhic system and the two of those are laced uh, on top of each other much like the human experience where there's a mystical and a rational experience that's happening simultaneously and we have to take both those two things together. Okay, I want to thank uh, the panelists for a great panel. So feel free to follow up with any of the panelists either in person or via email. Thank you so much. Just uh, for the parents, in about uh, five minutes, we're going to meet in the Rambam room downstairs. There's coffee and tea and whatever else they put out there outside. And we'll have a sort of closing opportunity to have a discussion before, uh, before the rest of the day. Okay. Everybody else, guys, regular shear. If my shear wants to grab the Gemaras quickly and come up here, we're going to be there. Well, what did you